0: Hello to all you zoned out heads out there in radio land. This is an exclusive podcast episode for our gated community of Patreon subscribers. If you are not a subscriber and you somehow got your hands on this episode, know that a security officer in a tactical golf cart will be arriving shortly to ascertain, obtain, and detain you immediately. Now that it's just us dues-paying HOA members, welcome to the show. This is the second ever bonus episode, and I've honestly had a lot of fun creating this one. The first bonus episode about Garrett Hardin is probably my favorite episode of the podcast because I find it endlessly entertaining to shit on that asshole. This episode is about a man who is far more consequential. This episode is about a man who remains a household name in part due to his company continuing to make cars he would hate if he were alive today. A man who despised his only son because he couldn't create an exact copy of himself. A man who tried to build a city in the jungle mostly just to say that he could. We're talking about Henry Ford. Originally, this Ford bonus content was supposed to be one episode, but actually there's too much to fit into one episode, so you're getting two bonus episodes instead, baby. This episode will be about Ford the man and his attempts at city building before trying to build a city in the Amazon. The second episode will solely be about the rise and fall of Fordlandia. Before we get into that, I'll offer a general citation. Nearly everything I say in this episode will be coming from the book Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City, by Greg Grandin. Assume I am pulling from this fantastic book unless I cite something else. The last housekeeping item is that I want to do a show in the future where I comment on listener-submitted development documents like comprehensive plans, major building projects, or other stuff in that nebulous category. Feel free to send me something from your town or someplace else, and in a future episode, I might talk about it. Anyway, let's talk about Ford the Man. Henry Ford, at his peak, was a quixotic man, a genuine dreamer intoxicated by his own often unachievable dreams and a sense of self-importance. Before there was Elon Musk, there was Henry Ford, except Henry Ford sold a car that didn't catch on fire all the time. Reading about Ford, I can't help but feel for the guy just a little bit. A tiny bit but mostly I just think, my friend, you have sown the seeds of your own destruction. Any success you find will taste like ashes in your mouth. Born in 1863, Ford was a tinkerer who grew up on a farm in Michigan outside of Detroit. He was fascinated by machinery, and unlike a lot of the rich people who cosplay as engineers, or as useful people doing anything other than sitting on piles of cash, Ford was actually a talented engineer. In the 1890s, he started designing and building automobiles, and he eventually started Ford Motor Company to manufacture his Model T in larger quantities. More than anything else, Ford was obsessed with perfecting the system of mass production that would allow him to produce as many Model Ts as possible. When reading about him, it often seems like he was an engineer who was thrust into the position of a capitalist, a position he would seemingly vacillate between venerating and abhorring. Ford was a man of contradictions, and I think this passage from Fordlandia sums up this quality of his quite nicely. He was a suffragist who didn't offer women the same $5 a day wage he did men. He passionately advocated placing U.S. sovereignty under the authority of the League of Nations and talked about the need to establish a world government well into the 1940s, but then condemned Jews for their quote-unquote internationalism. He called for the nationalization of the railroads and telegraph and telephone service, yet he hated Franklin Delano Roosevelt and refused to abide by New Deal regulations. He exalted the dignity of the worker and fashioned himself a scourge of the capitalist, but was violently opposed to unionism. And he was a radical pacifist who once conceded that one last great war might be needed to finally bring about world disarmament. At the vanguard of the industrial and consumer revolution responsible for many of the vices he condemned, Ford tried to transcend this dissonance with a self-regard bordering on the Promethean. The thing is, it's incredibly common for people to have contradictory views, especially in the United States. I'd venture to say everybody at least has a couple opinions that contradict each other. That's why leaving so much capital in the control of any single person is a bad way to organize an economy. Still, I think there's something to be said for acknowledging Ford's shortcomings. We don't do great man history on this podcast. We only do terrible man history where I just shit on everyone we talk about. Before we get into Ford's city-building antics, I just want to talk about some bizarre anecdotes about Ford that I thought were funny. Actually, this bit is not very funny, at least not the first part. Ford did a lot of ruthless and invasive things to discipline and degrade his workers, Yes, he is celebrated as introducing the $5 Workday in 1914, but he also had a sociological department that would regularly inspect people's homes unannounced and question them about their spending and drinking habits, their sex lives, and the cleanliness of their houses. The man he trusted more than anyone, including his own son, was his union buster and disciplinarian, Harry Bennett. Bennett was a rancid, horrible, violent man who set up a network of spies inside and outside the factories to sniff out any mention of unionization, and he would routinely make examples of any employee that stepped out of line by beating them up. Once, he purposefully hit at least one employee with a car that that employee had just repaired. This is why we have a labor movement, because capital owners will do anything to stamp out any form of collective action to improve the lives of workers. This is also why we have arts and crafts, so people do something harmless with their creative energy like making puppets out of pipe cleaners instead of devising cruel schemes of violent punishment. What I'm saying is that Harry Bennett would have made a great art teacher, and there would definitely never be any problems in that classroom. One of the stranger ways Ford would exert control on the personal lives of his employees was through a mandatory American assimilation program. Most of Ford's employees were immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, the Middle East, Japan, and Mexico. Grandin writes in Fordlandia, Ford charged his sociological department with Americanizing immigrants, conditioning ongoing employment on their attending English and civic classes. Commencement from the Ford School had the graduating workers regaled in their native dress, singing their national songs and dancing their folk dances, and climbing up a ladder to enter a large papier-mâché melting pot. On the stage's backdrop was painted an immigrant steamship, and as four teachers stirred the pot with long ladles, the new amalgamated Americans emerged in derby hats, coats, pants, vests, stiff collars, and polka dot ties, singing the Starred Spangled Banner. It's pretty common these days for companies to have mandatory employee engagement activities where your boss makes you go bowling after work or throws a private music festival featuring some awful act like the Chainsmokers if you work at a really big company. However, Henry Ford's papier-mâché melting pot graduation ceremony is absolutely the worst mandatory fun event I have ever heard of. There is so much wrong with it and I don't know where to begin. To me, this would read as propaganda against American culture if I didn't understand the intention behind it. The ceremony starts with people from many different cultural backgrounds showcasing their dances and songs, a celebration of human diversity and creativity. Then, they all are herded into a large cauldron like a witch is going to cook them into a stew, and they reemerge as identical Charlie Chaplin knockoffs singing the national anthem at gunpoint. The whole display contradicts Ford's professed internationalism. He would often say that when he wasn't working, he would forget he was American, yet for his employees, he thought it was vital that they shed their previous national ties. He truly believed he was raising the consciousness of humanity, and these little graduation ceremonies represented one way he was trying to do that. Okay, so Ford was an invasive and power-mad boss who made his workers put on the most contrived displays of nationalistic pomp that you could imagine. Like, we're talking about making grown adults perform in a play a seven-year-old might write for a school assignment about the American melting pot. But the strangest thing about Henry Ford, hands down, is that he is the original soy boy. Now look. I don't believe a lick about the feminizing effects of soy and how its use in various products is demasculinizing society. Believe me, I tried it, but didn't work. (laughs) It's been debunked as hokum, poppycock, and balderdash. All favorite words of Henry Ford, I'm sure. However, I do think if this fact were more widely known, a lot of the manosphere, which I imagine generally regards him as an alpha male, success-win entrepreneur, and the Elon Musk of his time, would probably eject him from his seat at the pantheon of all-time great men. Here is Greg Grandin in Fortlandia again. Ford promoted soy as a wonder food. He hired Edsel Ruderman, a childhood friend and scientist after whom he named his only child to develop novel foodstuffs from soy. He forced his associates to eat soy biscuits and served his dinner guests soy banquets, course after course of dishes made from soybeans, including puree of soybean, soybean crackers, soybean croquettes with tomato sauce, buttered green soybeans, pineapple rings with soybean cheese, soybean bread with soybean butter apple pie with soy crust, roasted soybean coffee, and soy milk ice cream. Furthermore, Ford's biggest hope for soy was that soy milk would eradicate the cow. He said in 1921, the cow is the crudest machine in the world. He was generally put off by a lot of farm animals, believing it was a waste of time and energy to grow cereals to feed those animals and then eat the animals and their products rather than just eat the cereals directly. He's technically right about energy efficiency, but I think it's a sign of his giant ego that he believed he could disrupt animal husbandry, a 12,000-year-old human practice. Back to soy, though. I just think it's interesting how attitudes about certain foods change over time. One of the most powerful men in the world was championing soy as a superfood, but these days, soy is just a meme that refers to feminine men. When I first read about Ford's soy banquets, I soy-faced. And I think the soy face rules. I think the creation of a pejorative term for a sincere expression of joy among men is an example of how patriarchy narrowly limits the breadth of men's emotion and expression. That's a real shame because the men who subscribe to that kind of thinking are missing out on the depth of human experience. To all the men listening, take a lesson from Henry Ford You can be multifaceted. You can be a soy boy and still be a ruthless asshole. All right, enough Henry Ford trivia. Let's get into the story of Fordlandia. This episode will just be concerned with the lead-up to Fordlandia. Fordlandia did not come out of the blue. It was not Henry Ford's first foray into urban planning and development. We have already talked about his sociological department and how it monitored the lives of Ford employees to ensure they were living in a morally upright manner. So it is not much of a stretch that with his immense wealth and obsession with perfecting living, that he would eventually start planning ideal communities. Ford was not alone at this point in history, as the early 20th century was the dawn of urban planning as its own field. Many urban planners, scholars, and enthusiasts like Ford were imagining different ways of organizing communities in search of solving whatever they believed were society's problems. This is how many people outside the urban planning field still approach the city, believing that there must be an ideal, optimized form that instills the right values and ways of living in its inhabitants. My freshman year of college, I picked up Ebenezer Howard's Garden Cities of Tomorrow and genuinely believed that he had cracked the code on cities. However, in my first planning class, Urban History, one of the first things my professor said was that cities are a wicked problem. Wicked problems have no solution. The idea being in this context that there is no way to create a city that will satisfy all of its inhabitants. Cities are a complex web of social, economic, and political systems, so any attempt to solve a problem for one section of the population will create problems for another. This is not to say that all problems are equal, though. A solution to a lack of affordable housing and economic segregation in cities would be to build public housing in affluent neighborhoods. However, in solving the affordable housing issue, a new problem dubious term there, but a problem has been created for the wealthy residents who do not want to live around poor people due to prejudice or concerns about their home values. Public housing also undermines the private real estate development market, angering real estate capitalists in the process. Wicked problems are often political problems, and political problems don't have technocratic solutions that make everybody happy. So in the case of affordable housing, you have competing political factions of affluent homeowners and developers on one side, and the urban poor and homeless on the other. As socialists, our job is to recognize the needs of the poor who do not have their basic necessities secured as more legitimate than the segregationist desires of the urban upper class, choosing to solve the problem of housing insecurity, rather than maintain a system of exclusion and precarity in service of bourgeois desires. Getting back to Ford, he believed he could take an engineer's approach to optimize the city, but ended up bedeviled by the wicked problem that is the city. His first attempts in earnest at community planning happened in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Technically, I've been to the Upper Peninsula, or UP, as it's often called. My girlfriend and I took an anniversary trip up north to Lake Superior, and our route took us through Hurley, Wisconsin, which is right across the Montreal River from Ironwood, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula. Realizing that the Upper Peninsula was right down the street from where we were, we took a quick detour across the state line just to say we've been to the UP. So you could say I'm an expert on the area. Before continuing, I just have to say that Lake Superior during autumn may be my favorite place in the world. I've never felt a greater calm than when I was there. I love it so much, and one day I want to be up there in winter because it would be just so cozy, oh my gosh. Anyway, I'm pretty sure I briefly mentioned Ford owning forests and mines in the Upper Peninsula a couple episodes ago. The Upper Peninsula was in an economic slump. Its mines closed and forests exploited unsustainably to the point of exhaustion. In 1919, Ford bought massive tracts of land spanning across four counties, but unlike the previous capitalists to dominate the area, Ford actually tried to be sustainable in his extractive processes. Rather than clear-cutting forests, he enacted selective cutting policies where only mature trees would be cut while the younger trees would be left to grow longer. If an area needed to be clear-cut, he had the stumps cut no more than six inches high as opposed to the two-foot-high stumps logging companies would often leave behind. This was both a more efficient use of the wood and allowed for quicker regeneration, fewer forest fires, and experiments in reforestation. However, Ford wasn't just interested in resource extraction, He took an active role in the existing communities in which he built new sawmills and parts plants, and he also started new company towns inhabited by his laborers and their families. Maybe took an active interest is an understatement. (laughs) The Ford Company basically took over the municipal functions of the existing communities, taking responsibility for sanitation, education, power, and sometimes even the churches. Ford forbade the sale of tobacco and alcohol at the local commissaries and medical examinations were required at a cost to employees. Ford raised wages substantially in these communities, but that also gave him an excuse to raise rents. The rent money was reinvested in the communities, and roads were repaved, new schools were built, and the existing building stock was repaired. One worker noted another change to the communities. Quote, "'Paint, paint, paint. He had six or eight men painting the year round. They painted every house and every one of the company shops.' Then they'd go back and start all over again. Lawns were cut and flowers were planted. Ford was enthralled by the idea of self-reliance and the marriage of agriculture and industry from top to bottom. What that meant for his workers was a garden plot outside each of their homes so they could grow their own vegetables and an insistence that they split their time between milling, manufacturing, and farming. At the same time, he required all their picket fences to be torn down fences that were used by the families to corral livestock like chickens, cows, and pigs. Ford's disdain for farm animals was in top form in the Upper Peninsula. Living conditions overall improved in the communities Ford took over or started. In one company town he started called Alberta, there was electricity, heating, indoor plumbing, paved roads and sidewalks, and movies, a major step up from the generally dirty and cold cabins many logging companies provided workers. Some of the pre-existing communities Ford affected were Pequaming, Munising, Lantz, and Iron Mountain. However, these attempts at social engineering seemed more like experiments or exercises in vanity than long-term community building. Many of Ford's investments did not make economic sense from a capitalist perspective, as much of the millwork done in smaller communities like Pequaming could be done more efficiently in the larger facilities in Lance or Iron Mountain. Additionally, the logging towns built by Ford were generally too small for any real sense of community beyond work to flourish. You might only find a dozen people in these towns, and they would have to leave if they wanted to buy anything beyond bare essentials or do anything beyond hanging out in the rec room, like going to church, or being around strangers. It was a lonely life for many in spite of the high standard of living relative to other logging towns. Ford would develop communities across lower Michigan as well. But these communities were more easily integrated not only into Ford's supply chain, but into the larger regional economic system as well. The Upper Peninsula is beautiful, but when you go up north you can't help but notice how few people there are. One person's solitude is another's loneliness, but if you're going to try to design places for people to live in earnest, you have to contend with the basic human need to socialize. The communities in which Ford invested would eventually fall back into an economic slump when the initial boom passed and the Ford Company streamlined its supply chain. The decade between nineteen twenty and nineteen thirty was the last time many of these places saw population growth in any genuine sense. Before we move on to Ford's next attempt at city making, I'll just say that if you ever have the chance to go up north, take it. It's a very special place. If you want to contribute to the health of the people and the environment in the area, Support the movement to shut down Line 5. I'll include a link to the movement's website in the description. If you live in northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Michigan, and think it's weird I'm romanticizing your home, I can't help that I've mostly spent my life in Nebraska and central Iowa. I haven't had many chances to hang out in an honest-to-God forest that feels like it goes on forever, so let me enjoy myself. Before his Brazilian magnum opus, Ford would take one more swing at city building in the U.S., this time along the Tennessee River in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. This stretch of the Tennessee River was economically depressed, populated by isolated farmers and communities without many of the new comforts of life, like electricity. Basically, Ford wanted to build a city in a line. Wait, let me start over. Ford wanted to build a 75-mile-long city. Hold up. Let's try one more time. Henry Ford wanted to build a city as thin as Manhattan but five and a half times its length. Sometimes reading about Ford, I honestly wonder what having that much money and power does to somebody that they think they could actually accomplish something like that because so many billionaires have similarly grandiose ideas. And here's the thing, urban areas like that do kind of exist today. Maybe not with such extreme proportions, given that Manhattan is only about two miles wide, but Miami's built-up metropolitan area is like 105 miles long north to south and only 20 miles wide at its widest point east to west. Again, Miami makes an appearance in this episode series. I really am going to have to visit soon, aren't I, with how often you all are making me bring it up. You all are just rabid for me to go to Miami, I get it. Fine, drag me to Miami Beach and make me sit by the sea with the fruity drink in one hand and the warm ocean breeze flitting through the other. You would like that, wouldn't you? I'll do it, but I can't believe you all are demanding I escape the oncoming Midwestern winter onslaught by vacationing in a tropical paradise. You make me sick. Anyway, as long as we're doing episode callbacks, I should mention that Mohammed bin Salman, burger Wi-Fi entrepreneur and crown prince of the Saudi royal family, stole Ford's idea for his harebrained city project called The Line. The Line would be 105 miles long, like Miami, but only about 0.1 miles wide, so like 1-200th the width. I'll probably do an episode about it at some point, but I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if MBS has been inspired by Ford, because a lot of the same selling points for the line can be found in Ford's Muscle Shoals urban plan. Ford was intensely interested in the city as a concept, but largely because he was disgusted by it. Kind of how it's gross when your cat licks its butt, but you still follow it around all day baby-talking it because she's the cutest and lullest baby in the world. Ford believed that cities had grown into sprawling, unwieldy messes whose concentric circles of development left people trapped in urban areas without any access to nature. I'm not sure the role his product played in urban sprawl ever became apparent to him. The idea behind his linear city and MBS's line is that nature would only ever be a short distance from every point in the city. Moreover, the surrounding agricultural economy would be integrated into the urban economy, in Ford's city anyway, with seasonal factory workers being attracted to work in the nitrate factories the federal government had started building and Ford intended to finish. It's like I said a couple episodes ago, this was the era when people tried to solve the city through geometry and mathematics, and Ford was a major contributor to that idea at the time. Additionally, a concern about access to nature among architects and public health practitioners is one of the foundational elements of urban planning emerging as a discipline during this time. While Ford may have had a relatively extreme solution to the problem of the city, this was a period where a lot of people were just throwing shit at the wall to see what would stick. Unfortunately for him, the federal government would not grant him the massive land concessions he was asking for, with progressive senators suspicious of private companies taking over functions they believed should be carried out by government. If only we had them in the Senate today. Or maybe we just get rid of the Senate, I don't care. Actually, one of those senators was from Nebraska, so hey, at least Nebraska has sent one good politician to Congress once. Of course, Ford hated that the federal government actually followed through on its responsibilities during the New Deal era with the electrification of the Tennessee Valley and all the jobs and social programs that helped uplift northern Alabama during that period. He resisted most New Deal policies because, of course, he did. He was a capitalist, and the New Deal is the closest we've ever gotten in this country to genuine anti capitalist policy on a mass scale. Feeling frustrated with his inability to continue gobbling up land and capital to his heart's content in the United States, he turned his attention abroad. The Ford Company had already had plenty of experience setting up factories in and sourcing materials from other countries, but the most significant material that he had not yet been able to bring directly under his control yet was rubber. With that in mind, Henry Ford set his sights on attractive land deep in the Amazon rainforest. We'll leave the story there for now. Thank you so much to you all for being patrons of the show. My listenership continues to increase and I have a real hope that there is something here that could grow into something sustainable long-term. Your support motivates me to keep going, and I really appreciate it. You probably already know my social media accounts, so I won't rehash them here. Have a good one, and I'll see you in the next bonus episode.